Hey folks, welcome to Hamilton Podcast, March 2016. Go. Go. Oh, come on. Mark Manson. Tonight's top story, local business owner finds himself in hot water after drone delivery service goes on the fritz. But first, today is a sad day here at HAM News. It's Dan the Weatherman's last day. How's the weather looking on your retirement, Dan? <laughs> retirement, that, that's good, Mark. I was forced to retire. You know it. I know it. They should know it. I've been at this station for 10 years now, and they just throw me away like a baby on prom night. Oh, uh, uh, how about you just give us tomorrow's <sighs> forecast there, Dan? Sweet. Yeah, yeah, I can do that. Uh, tomorrow we've got about a 23% chance of flurries, and a 100% chance of you being a fucking asshole. You're an asshole, Mark, you know that? Okay, uh, feeling a little under the weather, are we, Dan? <laughs> hey, feeling under the weather? Fuck off, Mark. I've been listening to your stupid puns day in and day out. And there's a we got a storm front moving in Tuesday. No, no. You know what? Fuck it. It's my last day, and I've got something I want to say to you. Okay. Mark, you're a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. You know what? And your wife, she touched my penis at the Christmas party last year. Oh, okay. fantastic. No, 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 it was uh, over the pants, can we, but can it we meant something, here? Mark. Can we get him out of here? Yep. No. All right. Wait. Thanks, Dan, for hey. coming in. Hey, More at 11. Get your goddamn hands off of me. Fuck you, Mark. Fuck you! All right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to episode two. Man, this first episode went over well. Yeah, we want to uh, thank everyone who checked out the first episode and who liked it enough to come back and listen to the second episode. Um, basically, the responses have been generally positive, and uh, it's doing better than we thought it would. Yeah. Much more than we could have hoped for, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I was shocked with the numbers we were getting in on how many views this thing was actually getting. Much uh, more than seven, which was the anticipated goal. We were like, if we could hit seven, maybe eight, eight plays, we're we're fucking rock stars. We got this home run out of the park. Grand slam. Exactly. Other sports analogies. It must be the shoes. <laughs> From downtown. <laughs> yeah. NBA Jam. Um, yeah, but like one thing I wasn't anticipating with uh with doing the podcast is uh trying to book guests on we've been reaching out to a lot of people from our past uh people that helped us when we were in bands coming up and reaching out to new bands and and uh you know it it always amazes me like in in my emails to people it's always like hey i don't know if you remember me at all uh but you know tom and i are doing this podcast we're not crazy like come down to tom's basement (laughs) i swear you'll be okay and it always amazes me how many people are like, oh, my God, I haven't heard from you in forever. Like, that sounds awesome. Like, yeah, sure, totally. And it's just like, you know, maybe it's naive of me to think, like, I have very little impact on a lot of people's lives. But uh, it does feel pretty good knowing that people, A, remember you, and B, give a shit enough to uh, agree to come to your shitty basement. Yeah. And you know what? If, uh, you know, for all those people that we emailed or will email in the future, 
If you're at all nervous about coming down to my basement, remember the buddy system. Bring a buddy. That's right. Hold hands. If the lights go out, uh, stay where you are. Uh, well, rape whistles will be uh, <laughs> handed out at the door. And always tell uh, tell a loved one where you're at. Have your phone set for 911. Exactly. Speed dial. We, uh, we promise that... We, we believe in safety first. Safety first, always. Um, but we were lucky enough to have uh, an old acquaintance of ours come on the show recently. And uh, it was awesome. I wasn't expecting uh, such a warm, a resounding agreement to come down to your shitty basement and talk to us about old times and... Uh, but before we get into that, I just want to uh, bring up the fact that YouTube kicked us off. Uh, for some reason, we violated the code of ethics for YouTube when we originally tried to upload episode one. And we had to appeal their decision <laughs> on banning our video online. Yes, it took some clever legal maneuvering. There was lawyers involved. Uh, at one point, there was a lynch mob following us around. I just don't understand what we did that could have aggravated... Because YouTube has some seedy shit on there. Yeah. They have the, the age difference, you know, the age setting for vulgar or whatever. But I've seen some pretty brutal shit, like schoolyard fights, uh, dogs attacking children, you know, horrible violence and, and, and conflict. Right. But our podcast... For our whatever simple reason, little podcast. Our small-time white picket fence podcast. Which barely has any teenage fights happening during the podcast. Minimal. Very minimal. Minimal fighting going on in the podcast. That violates their code of ethics. So, you know, we couldn't have our podcast on YouTube. Luckily, you know, once we, uh, once we pulled the strings and we got a little tough with them, we said, hey, YouTube... You know, we're, we're not to be trifled with, young man. They they straightened up, and uh, they are now flying right. We have our podcast available on YouTube. Yeah, but the worst part was that they never once told me what the issue was. So, like, I'm worried that when I go to upload this episode, maybe it's on there right now. Maybe you're listening to it on YouTube, and the strings have already been pulled, and the problem fixed. But not once did they ever say, this is what you guys did that we didn't like it was just banned yeah and then i appealed it and then it was there again is that how it plays out on the internet like i don't know youtube i know there's some big hitters on youtube they got millions of views and 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 thousands upon thousands of shares and everything else is, is do they have to jump through these legal hoops or are they picking on the small town uh innocent naive kids is that what's happening i feel like youtube is a bit of a bully and bullying is wrong. We all learn that in school. Except YouTube. Except YouTube. So, uh, YouTube, uh, go fuck yourself. And uh, please allow episode two on, on your wonderful site. Yes, fuck you, but we also need you. So, if you could just work with us, that'd be good. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many people are actually streaming an audio podcast on the visual medium of YouTube? I'm guessing very few because for some reason the YouTube app on your phone doesn't uh if you if you minimize the app the music stops yeah i, I think it's the that. only app or one of the only apps that does that those fucking douchebags yeah whereas even soundcloud you can just have that thing going all day yeah soundcloud gets it What's you can be browsing the internet you can be 
browsing YouTube and still have SoundCloud playing. Okay, so bottom line is we, we're going to be uploading to SoundCloud. We're going to be uploading for free download on iTunes, yes. which I'm sure you guys have already figured this out because you're listening to it. Uh, thirdly, we will be putting it up on YouTube for the uh, pathetic few of you that uh, seem that as the most viable option to listen to our voices. We like to compensate everyone. Yeah, as available as you know as much as possible because uh, we're whores and we need the attention. But uh, let's not digress too much further. Let's get into this interview, which is full of fantastic rock and roll stories and folklore with our pal, Lou Molinaro. Hi folks, John Wilkinson here again for West Hamilton Stereo. Now I know what you're going to say. John, the drones were a bad idea. Well, if we could all refrain from suing each other, that would really help me out a lot. Don't like the drones? They're gone. One of the many things we do for our customers down here at West Hamilton Stereo. So come on by and try our new self-serve inventory system. You come down, you pull it off the shelf, you bring it to the register, you pay for it, and you take it home. Wow Check out our new products, such as headphones, turntables, VCRs, Craftsman tool sets, 126 buckets of paint, and a whole bunch of fleece blankets with Bob Marley's face on them. With prices so low, you'll think we stole the stuff. So come on down to West Hamilton Stereo and get all your ear holes filled. West Hamilton Stereo. West Hamilton Stereo. Yes. Grab those headphones there, man. Okay. And then you can... Cheers, uh, yeah, cheers. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Yeah, it's good to see you guys. That way you can... Uh, we don't have the best equipment here, <laughs> so it's like these shitty mics are what we're using. Well, I can hear you, and I can hear me. There we go. Yeah. Can, can you hear me? I can hear you, All too. Right. See, How long have you guys been doing this? This is episode two. Oh, good. So we're doing uh, we're doing about one a month. Yeah. And trying to release it, like, second week of the month or so. Uh, our first guest we had on was uh, Mike Machofsky. He's doing... Uh, he was in one of our bands a while back, but he's now doing his own kind of, like, solo project thing called Funny Boat, and it's, like, Radiohead-esque. Oh, cool. Kind of stuff. It, yeah, it was really cool. He did a really cool cover of uh, Folsom Prison Blues mm. when he was here. So check that out if you get a chance. It's Send all me a link. Online. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah, we're glad to have you. So uh, what are you doing? What are you doing in Guelph? What am Quickly. I doing in Guelph? Yeah, that's where I work, man. Is that we, really? This doesn't pay the bill. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Yeah. Well, that's the dream, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I work at a at a health food store up there. Oh, good for you. Guelph's yeah. a cool city. It is. I, I find it's a lot of. Uh, like I didn't know anything about it until I started working there, and it's a lot of hippies there. It's also yeah, yeah. It's also the highest uh, rate of organized crime in all of Southern Ontario. I believe that. Human trafficking is huge there. Really, <laughs> eh? Yeah. Really? I, I thought it'd be other things. There's a lot of bakeries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there is a lot of bakeries. There's a lot of organics. Right. There's a lot of uh, local farms. That's funny. Maybe that's where they're trafficking the humans. <laughs> Jesus, I wouldn't think that. I didn't. You know, that's just not something you hear about. But it's really well hidden. I guess it would have to be. Yeah. Well, for sure, in order to run it. Yeah. 
Wow. And where'd you hear about it if it's so well hidden? Never you mind. <laughs> <laughs> he was waiting in the stairway in the second floor of a building, waiting to have a bathing session. And uh... That's right. You think these boots pay for themselves? <laughs> I need some money somehow. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. But yeah, awesome. We're glad to have you here. I'm glad you uh, agreed to come to Tom's basement. Yeah. Out of the way. I saw yeah. you get out of a cab, and now I feel bad that you actually paid money. To no, actually, it's my buddy Brian who drives a cab, and... Uh, I was, uh, do you know Brian? No. Okay. Yeah. No, he's a, a cab driver who's also a musician. And so I told him that I was coming up here and he wanted to talk to me about, uh, booking some shows. So I said, uh, how about 10 minutes going up to the mountain and then can you pick me up and then we can go for a coffee and talk? So he said, yeah. So it was perfect. perfect. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. You got friends all over the place, eh? Well, you know what? It, 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 the, the city gives you opportunities to make friends all over the place. Yeah. It's an easy city to make friends in. And that's what I wanted to ask you about too, is like, um, how long have you been booking shows for in, in, in Hamilton? Um, 1998, 1999. Um, I moved out here. I was working for a marketing firm that was, uh, basically doing, uh, marketing for big box stores, a couple in particular. And then they merged with another company and offered all these people a buyout. So at that time, I thought I'd be stupid not to get it to take the buyout and not now I'll just find something else to do. Uh, prior to that, I was booking uh, shows when I was in university in Ottawa. And then when I moved back home to Oshawa, I ended up uh, booking shows again just to, you know, kind of put some money on uh, the table for me. Right. And so as soon as I, um, as soon as I quit my nine to five job, I, I just immediately went back to, uh, booking shows and there was a guy that I knew through mutual friends at the Corktown that was booking shows at the time and his name was Dan Quinlan and he was booking shows uh, I guess for about a couple of years at that point and then I suggested I said hey how would you feel if I just uh, brought a couple of shows over here and so we you know we got along well and so I ended up uh, starting uh, to do some shows there and then they were kind of at that point in the like late nineties, they were really not too sure what they were trying to do. Uh, they were kind of, um, sort of, uh, entertaining the idea of doing country music. Hmm. And then they were entertaining the idea of just doing bands like cover bands. Right. So I, I, I wasn't too sure, you know, it was just based on what I liked and what I wanted to book. I wasn't too sure if that would have been the appropriate place, uh, to continue booking. And so the Raven opened up <clears throat> where was that uh right where the uh, gallagher's is right now oh, okay and that was uh, a bar that lasted for about two years and brody was the main booker there but he was really um open-hearted and uh said yeah if there's shows that you want to host why don't you book them here and so i did that and then i got a, he moved over to the underground and i was starting to do some shows there but at the time uh the court town ended up going back to more or less rock and original bands and so certain shows that i was doing that needed the bigger capacity i was uh, going back to the court town and at that time the the owner of the court town had said to me well why don't you just do all your shows here and that's why, you know, I, I ended up staying there. And I, and I liked the, the, the idea that I had a, a room that I could work with exclusively. And 
I also felt that there was a bit of a challenge because the court town didn't have the best reputation, but I also knew that it couldn't get any worse. There you go. <laughs> you know, so that was kind of an inspiration to me thinking, okay, well, it, it's not going to get any worse. And I always admired it because when I, when I was in university, I knew this girl that lived in Hamilton and, uh, during reading weeks or even in the off season, uh, in the summers, I, I used to come up and hang out with her and I, I dated her for a while and we always used to go to the court town. Right. And so the, the, that was kind of like just a, a familiar spot. I knew it was at the, uh, you know, right on that corner. Um, so. And that's where, uh, that's where Tom and I met you for the first time as well. Right. Was uh, you gave a couple of young pups their first chance mm-hmm. or one of their first chances uh, to play a show. Uh, I want to say that was 2005. I think it was earlier. You think, yeah, you think yeah, so? Yeah, I was actually thinking about that when I was coming up here because I was thinking uh, Red Confidential would have been 2004. Yeah, it was that. It was early. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we tried to look back through our through the interwebs to find the earliest hint of like when it's we hard, played right? the Coke t- Well, the I have all the clippings from the view cut yeah, out. This guy's got scrap. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. You're, so it's like anytime our band was playing, I'd get a view, cut it out. You know, I got a stack of them over here. Oh, that's so great. I went looking back through there and the oldest one I could find was July 2005 mm-hmm. with uh, Robin Black. Yeah, I remember the Robin Black show. Yeah, that yeah. was the that's the oldest clipping I have. We and might I, have played before that. I, I, I definitely think you guys played before that because I think the I was introduced to you guys through... Um, the guys from High Voltage. Yeah, okay. that definitely would have been uh, probably where you heard it because we were, for a while there, we were playing shows together yeah. for a lot of the time. Um, which then later turned to Dean LeCure yeah. and now the Zillies. Is some of those guys? Uh, yeah, the, the the bass player and the and guitar player, Sean, and I can't think. Oh, my God, I can't remember the room. Oh, yeah. He goes by Elmo Lewis. <laughs> on Facebook. Uh, but those guys are, uh, yeah, they're now the Zillies. Uh, they're a trio. And it's completely different musically in terms of right. what uh, they used to do before. Right. Because I think back then, uh, well, they were young. We were young. And mm. I think we were all trying to do like a, like a late 80s hard rock kind of vibe. Mm. We were like ACDC influenced. Yeah. Um, definitely back then it was like that that style or nothing like nothing else existed in our mind well it was just really refreshing to see young guys pick up guitars again for the longest time it was just kind of uh there was a void uh it, it just seemed that you know music became very experimental which is fine but uh, you know the, the it was lacking especially in a city like hamilton it was just like more of the older guys that were doing rock and roll and um you know you, you always need someone to carry the torch and move on forward and it was uh, refreshing to see that bands like you guys were uh you know embracing that acdc rock and roll because uh, you know i think every kid uh should be introduced to rock and roll and i think every kid should uh have a stack of acdc and led zeppelin records for sure and okay let's go back a bit when okay. you when you were growing up yeah and you were first uh like did you grow up in a musical household or i Neither my mom or my dad played music, but here's what they used to do was they always used to have music playing in the house. And I, I, you know how there's certain things that you could just remember iconically and you'll never forget because for whatever reason, they just stand out. I remember my dad coming home and buying a three record set and it was a KTEL record set, uh, three records, and it was called Flashbacks. 
and it was all these 60s songs. So uh, it was everybody from the Beatles to the Rolling Stones to Cream, the Kinks. Oh, so you had like the good stuff right yeah. off the bat. But there was also a lot of like, you know, poppy stuff, you know, um, just, you know, things like uh, uh, Peggy March and... Uh, you know, people that were just popular artists. So it was just a, 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 a collaboration of just things that happened in the 60s musically. The Four Seasons were on that. So it wasn't just like a, a solid rock and roll compilation. You know, it, it, it was everything. It was a variety of stuff. The Everly Brothers were on it. And um, that introduced me just to names. And, and, and you know, there's and the music, of course, but that's how I recognized, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. But I, I was like a kid, so I'm thinking like maybe seven, okay, eight at the very oldest. I, I remember this record coming out. So it would have been like 72. And that would have been my first introduction to records. Okay. Actual, like, you know, the, 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 the tangible good. Right. And it was also my introduction to the fact that you could buy a record and have 20 songs on it. You know, 22 explosive hits, 20 power hits, everything. Like, you know, they, these KTEL compilations were really important to me as a kid because, uh, you know, you, you figured out what you liked and what you didn't like. So um, every time it was my birthday or every time it was Christmas, uh, my parents would continue continuously buy me records, for, uh, a, a KTEL record. And when I had a paper route in 73 i was a nine-year-old kid i had a paper route and i remember my very first check um and and, and it's the this sounds so sketchy but this is the way they used to do it back then you used to have a manager that would uh, meet you in the parking lot of either a church <laughs> or a school that's on the up and up and that's where you would get your check Maybe. for the paper route and i had a toronto star paper route and basically he would just basically tell all the paper carriers in different areas like he would find a, a sort of a um kind of like a an appropriate location that would be the midpoint to a lot of the carriers in different locations of the city and this is in oshawa and he would say okay so meet me at this uh parking lot and i'll have your pay and it was a check <laughs> and i remember um at that time giving the check to my mom and my mom giving me my money and thinking, you know, for whatever reason, I knew in advance that I wanted to buy my very, very first record myself. I wasn't too sure what it was or what it was going to be, but I knew that I wanted to just go and buy my own record. And I ended up going to the store in Oshawa called uh, Star Records, which was on the second floor above a jean shop called Who's Who. It's so f weird because I, I, I still remember the, the color of the walls. I remember the stairway going upstairs. It was an just important a, moment then for It you. was a really, really <laughs> important moment because at that point I was such an impressionable kid. I was the only kid in my family. So I didn't have brothers or sisters, right? So music was like, you know, kind of like a, uh, another sibling. You know, I, I would hang out in my bedroom a lot and just listen to music. Uh, and radio, I had a transistor radio, you know, just tuning into stuff. Uh, but I remember going upstairs and this other buddy of mine that played baseball or no, sorry, hockey with me at the time, his older brother would always go to this record store called Star Records. And prior to that, I had never really gone to an official record store uh, other than going to a department store okay. and buying records. Yeah. So I remember going upstairs by myself and being somewhat overwhelmed because People looked different. Everyone had long hair. The <laughs> owner didn't. Uh, he was balding, but, uh, you know, he, he, he was playing music loud. He had posters hanging up. And I remember a big Grand Funk poster that was hanging up. And I basically told him that, uh, you know, I, I had money from a paper route, and I wanted to buy a record, and I didn't know what to buy. 
And so I told him about this compilation called Flashbacks, and he said to me, so what record, what songs did you like off that? And I, I remember telling him that I liked uh, Sunshine of Your Love. I liked the Rolling Stones song on it. Actually, Sunshine of Your Love was my favorite song off that uh, three-record compilation. So Cream, I immediately identified, even as a kid, not even knowing who Eric Clapton was or his involvement with the uh, Yardbirds prior. And behind him was a billion-dollar bill pinned to the wall right where his uh, uh, counter was. And so I looked at this bill and I said, what's that? He says, that belongs to a record called Billion Dollar Babies from a band called Alice Cooper. And he had a play copy and he showed me the play copy. And I remember the outside was supposed to look like snakeskin. You opened up, it was gatefold. You had the pictures of the band on the left side and on the right side. It, it kind of looked like a, a, a snakeskin uh, wallet. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And on the inside, there was like that little loop where you keep your dough. And inside of it, that's where the billion dollar uh, bill was, right? So I, I was totally blown away by just the packaging of it. And I thought, <laughs> wow, this is so cool. And I hadn't, I never heard of the name Alice Cooper. I may have heard Schools Out, maybe not, but uh, I was just totally, again, an impressionable kid. I remember seeing that record pinned on the wall, or the, the, the billion dollar uh, pinned on the wall. And thought, okay, I, I, you know, I want to buy this record. Taking it home, listening to it, I didn't know if I liked it or not. It was just really different, you now, know. Like, did that? Did it scare you? Because I, I remember growing up in certain records. Uh, like, I grew up. My parents uh, mostly was like oldies, lemon fifty. Yeah. Whatever just happened to be on the radio. Yeah. My mom was big into Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. So not music, n not a big music household. Yeah. And I remember the first time I heard, uh, I think it was Kiss. Mm -hmm. I think when Tom showed me Kiss, I remember just this feeling of like, this is bad. Like, this is rebellious, rebellious, right? Yeah. And I just remember having that inner conflict with myself being like, is this okay? Did I like this? Like, I felt the I same really way. Do. Yeah, okay. So yeah. yeah, it's not just me then. No, I felt the same way. I, I wasn't too sure whether I should like it or not. I remember there was a song called Sick Things on it, which was kind of a dreary, sort of spooky song. Uh, I remember the song No More Mr. Nice Guy laughing to the title of that thinking that was a kind of a funny title yeah. um, but musically I wasn't too sure if I liked it or not I, I remember playing it a lot and um, this one kid that I was telling you about that uh, played hockey with me I, I, I told him I said hey I went to uh, that same record store that your brother goes to and I bought this record called Alice Cooper Billion Dollar Babies and Eddie McMillan is the guy's name he said oh my brother's got that that's a great album and, so, I, and, and so he knew, and he was like, I think a year or two older than me. Yeah. So I felt a comfort zone right immediately. It's like, okay. You're allowed to like it. I'm allowed to like it. Now I have to like it. I'm yeah. going to find every reason to like it. And then it just started growing on me. And I remember um, there was a song called Hello Hooray, which is kind of a beautiful melodic song. And it's very orchestral. And I remember my mom even commenting on it and saying, you know, this is a really good song. My mom loved music and you know, I, I don't know whether she knew enough about the band's appearance or the craziness about the band back then because they were the most wildest band in, in the world when they were out. And I didn't even know that. I just knew this band based on the fact that they had an album called Billion Dollar Babies. Yeah. And that's what changed my life. It really did. Well, and then, um, yeah, like obviously it influenced the way you must have uh, 
made decisions in your life, like to even get to the point where your your uh, love of music is so much influencing, like uh, booking shows and like like how did you first come into like getting into that scene of the whole music underground music scene? Um, it, it, once I started, it, it's funny because like I started looking for friends that liked music because of that like uh, for whatever reason I, I felt comfortable knowing that you know th at that point I was allowed to buy records and listen to whatever I wanted to because my parents weren't like you know what are you buying this garbage for or whatever they didn't care uh, so I had that freedom to basically explore um, and, and to be experimental in, in, in different things I remember you know buying Kiss Alive when it first came out you yeah. know just again just on the album cover it's a pretty intense album cover. It's an amazing album cover. It's just like, you know, you, exactly what you see is what you're going to hear. Yeah. You know, so that's, and that's what you wanted. And again, as a kid, I think that record came out in 75. I was like maybe 11 when it came out. And I remember just, you know, going to that same store and buying it. But I do remember the owner of that store saying, it's not that good of a record. Really? I don't, he wasn't a Kiss fan. <laughs> and, um, but I still wanted to buy it. And then I started finding out that people didn't like Kiss. It was like, you know, uh, Kiss sucks. There was something about it that uh, I think people that were real purists in music always kind of, um, you know, sort of down-talked Kiss as opposed to being big fans. Yeah, because they're polarizing, right? Like, they're, yeah. they're clowns. Yeah, for sure. I've noticed Kiss as being one of those bands, you either love them or you hate them. It's like, that's my experience. Yeah, yeah. I really liked, uh, you know, I, I, I bought... After Kiss Alive, I ended up buying, you know, the uh, their first three studio albums. Bought Destroyer. I bought albums up to Love Gun. Yeah. And then I stopped. I remember when the, they came out with I Was Made for Loving You. I wasn't entirely sure if I really liked what they were doing. And I thought, even then, you know, as a young teenager, teenager, I thought, okay, these guys are selling out because it's really a dance song. Yeah, it's a disco. Yeah, and they're not supposed to be a dance band. They're supposed to be a rock and roll band, right? Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> that's a double-edged sword with everything, right? Like, yeah. Uh, they were, they didn't give a shit. Let's be honest. No, they didn't care. You know, I, I think by that point, they were smart right from the get-go to be kind of masters of their own domain and determine what they wanted to do. And, you know, they were marketing geniuses that had people that really kind of uh, helped them with the, the, their, their whole identification. You know, Kiss, everywhere you saw those double S's, you know, you knew exactly what, it, you know. One way or another, you made a, a connection to him, whether you knew the, about the band or not. Musically, you still identify as like, oh, it's that crazy clown band. Yeah. You know? There's no bad publicity, though, right? Because everybody knows their name. Yeah. They're in the news, whatever else. But Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, well, I'm, I'm going to talk to you a bit about uh, about this in a minute, like uh, your band, Tung Fu. But mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to know, like, if uh, you wouldn't... You had played in bands prior to that? Never. Or if you, never? Never. I was a kid that always went to shows. <clears throat> um, I always thought the stage was sacred. Um, when I was a kid, I remember back in 1974, Oshawa celebrated their 50th anniversary as a city. <laughs> and they closed the four corners downtown and put a stage right in the middle of it. And so it was kind of a really, really great idea. Uh, but they, they, they had it coincide with uh, the sidewalk sale days where, you know, all the downtown stores would put out their uh, different, uh, whatever they sold, shoes, records, whatever, on tables, and then, then they would just have sidewalk sales. So for the 50th anniversary in July, they ended up having um, a stage on the four corners. And 
I was mesmerized. I remember riding my bike uh, just because I, I heard that there was going to be free music that was going to be playing. And earlier on during the day, it was going to be um, local bands. And I think the band that headlined that night, and this is back in 75, but I, again, you know, I think it was Rush. That's cool. Yeah. And I think it was before Neil Peart. I, okay. I, I, I remember like maybe watching the first two or three songs and then I had to go home because I was there all day, you know, and, and, and I knew, you know, I, I'd eventually have to go home. And I think the last band, the headline band would have been on at eight or whatever. But um, there was another record store um, called Wilson and Lee that basically sold a lot of 45s. They were like the place that you wanted to go if, you, if you're a 45 collector, but then they also sold musical instruments as well. And I remember that a lot of the, now we call it backline, but back then, you know, a lot of the instruments that were being used on stage, um, there was props going out to uh, Wilson Lee. And I remember that uh, one of these guys that had played in a band said, hey, we're going to go back to Wilson Lee to return some equipment. Why don't you guys come over and say hi to us? So I ended up riding my bike up there, and I remember just seeing this truck pulled up right in the front and unloading equipment. And it just looks, again, it, it, it was just too cool looking. It's like, wow, there's the band that was just on stage, and now they're just unloading all this equipment, drums <laughs> primarily. But I remember this vividly. And going back to see uh, other bands, and at one point um, – they had just built the uh, GO station in downtown Oshawa, and on the very, very top uh, level of their parking garage or their parking lot, on the third or fourth level, I can't remember how many there are, Wolfman Jack oh, cool. came down and basically waved no to everybody. Way. Yeah, you know, just like he <laughs> kind of just, you know, waved and said hello to everybody. May have been up there maybe for a minute or two at the very most, and that was it. So, like, they brought Wolfman Jack to, uh, you know, kind of greet everybody for the 50th anniversary. And then I remember going back and seeing a couple of uh, songs, and I really, really think that it was Rush uh, that was playing that night. That's pretty sweet, though. Yeah, and it was a free show, and I remember uh, just thinking that, uh, you know, that was my first sort of experience or legit experience of seeing a rock show of just, right. you know, seeing the stage, seeing the roadies set up, tear down big speakers. I was just overwhelmed, you know, it was, I was totally freaked out, but there was something about it that just kept me connected to it. I didn't want to leave. I found it really exciting. You oh, know, it is. Yeah, it is. And that's part of the draw, uh, for when we started a band, like, uh, we said this in, in episode one, but we were talking about when we first started jamming, uh, together, uh, we were doing it before we could play instruments. We were using cardboard cutouts of guitars and air guitaring and like mm -hmm. that whole, uh, standing whole... in front of the mirror. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like yeah. we, I think there's even home video cause we've known each other our whole lives. Yeah. I remember that. Right. So yeah, you're telling there, me that there's home video of us when we were 14, 13, something like that in Tom's parents bedroom in front of their double mirrored closet with an old, <laughs> old camcorder that we set up. And we're both wearing an ACDC Back in Black t-shirt. Cool. The, the exact same one. And, uh, yeah, we're, uh, and we're both just, I think we got the, the, the radio on or something, and, and we're just lip-syncing uh, every single ACDC song possible. And this tape is like 45 minutes long, an hour long. And Very it's cool. just, it's well, just like you, you talked about, like, that pivotal moment that you can kind of remember. Yeah. My memory sucks, right? So I can barely remember what I did yesterday. Mm. So I don't remember like the first record, first band I even seen, but um, 
I I think it was what made me want to get into a band mm-hmm. was uh, have you ever seen the video uh, Let There Be Rock the concert video yeah yeah that video I had I had a VHS copy of that and probably wore it out like every time our parents would hang out we'd get together and we just put that on and watch VHS it. Like, oh, yeah on oh, VHS yeah. Yeah. I wanna I wanna do that that looks really fun yeah Angus Young is a fucking legend in that oh for sure yeah uh, the the one part I don't know if you remember the one part where he's He's going all out and he's doing his duck walk and he's head banging and everything else and he actually goes off stage and they put an oxygen mask on him. I don't remember you that. Remember that? The no. next time you watch that, watch out for this because he goes off stage for a second before he goes out into the audience. Yeah. And he sits down and they put a towel around him and they put <clears> an oxygen mask and he takes a couple of big hauls off it, takes a little sip of water and then just like literally runs back out and knocks the oxygen mask <laughs> off and like, and I just remember like watching that going like this guy is possessed. Like I've never seen this. Like growing up in the age we did, it was all pop music and hip hop coming up. So it was. Right. Uh, Spice Girls and Backstreet Boys and all this garbage that. I, How did just, you guys discover ACDC? That would be through him. You know what it was? I mean, you actually, this has to do with what you're talking about earlier. Um, I bought a knockoff SG from. Oh, it used to be right downtown on the main drag Kane? on King. No, hmm. it's not there anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like a Rexall now. But uh, we were there, and I bought a knockoff SG. So I started looking up on the internet, like, who else plays this guitar? And I found this guy, Angus Young, and it's, he's in a Gibson guitar ad, you know, mm. holding up in the air with the lightning bolts or whatever. And uh, my aunt, when I was younger, was really sort of influential. Like, she would be like, you know, your parents bought you records every year. That was my aunt to me. Like, yeah. every Christmas or birthday, I'd get a Kiss record or something. Oh, this is a really good band that I like. Maybe you'll like it, you know? So she got me into Kiss. And then when I started playing, uh, or sorry, taking guitar lessons, I was kind of embarrassed that I like Kiss because same thing, right? I don't know if I should like these guys. They're with the makeup and it's kind of weird. So I, the other band I could think of was like, oh, I'm a big ACDC fan. Yeah. So then I just started that whole thing. And so. then uh, as everything else in our lives, uh, <laughs> Tom introduced me to everything, even though I'm older. Mm. Uh, I lived I lived a very sheltered life. Mm. So. Uh, yeah, again, Tom would just come over and be like, oh, hey, I have this CD of this band. And, oh, okay, cool, let's put it on. And then literally just like, holy shit, what is this? And that's literally been everything. Like, uh, Tom introduced me to Kiss. He introduced me to ACDC, The Who, Led Zeppelin. Uh, the classics. The, yeah, like the classics. And that's pretty much, once we were into that, it was like, okay, it's on now, right? So mm-hmm. then, then it was just a mission to get a band together, and we would talk for hours about, uh, you know, like, oh, what? Are we, like, we just need a bass player now, right? And then we can like start actually doing this and uh, dreaming big. Literally, yeah. 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 Well, well, luckily we had like people like you who actually supported it, and you know, you liked us enough to be like, hey, come back, right? Where every other uh, venue or place we'd try and play, it's you know, we're doing the legwork. We have to keep bugging the guy like hey like do you mind if we play again and he's well can you bring 20 people yeah and you never were like that i mean numbers are important but i think the thing is is you have to encourage people just to really want to do it i think that's the important thing is is when you see a band that you like and you see some promise in them you have to find reasons to want them to believe in themselves not so much into the numbers because you know what uh it you know things grow organically and you know when you when you see something that 
you feel good about and you're saying, okay, these guys have got something and they're really good at what they do. You want to support it because if the whole purpose is doing numbers, then you're really not supporting the art. You're supporting the math. And don't get me wrong. You need to have a balance of the two. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have to offset your expenses and pay your bills. But at the same point, you have a responsibility of nurturing. And, and, you know, that was a fun thing with the core town back then was just the fact that, you know, we had uh, a plethora of young bands that just wanted stage experience and just wanting to play. And for me, it was fun just because it was an introduction of seeing all these young bands that were coming out of Hamilton that were doing all sorts of different styles of music. Um, and then you start realizing that basically what they were doing, we were going through their parents' records and picking out things that they liked that their parents liked and, you know, just kind of put a different twist to it and, you know, didn't emulate it, but, you know, started having a bit of originality. And then all of a sudden you realize that, the next show, they didn't do 10 covers. They did five covers and five originals. Right, yeah. So, you know, they, they, they were growing. And that was good. It, it was, a, it, you know, for me, I, I think, you know, that period of the core town was really important for me because I felt um, I wanted to prove that it could be a viable venue again. And I also felt that it was a, a, a place where bands could uh, come in and grow without feeling the, the, the pressures of, uh, well, you only brought 20 people in. Sorry, guys, I gave you a Friday night. You know, the, chances are the next Friday night you've got a band that's going to fill it. You yeah. Know? So it, it's the law you of averages. Didn't put the new guy on as the headliner. Like we opened, right? Like we'd be an opening band for whoever was coming through town. Or, yeah. But that's all we ever wanted was like, you know what? We need to make fans. You know, and it's hard, like, unless you've got a bunch of friends from high school that want to come out, it's hard for people like us to do right. that. Like, you got to play some shows, and then hopefully people are like, oh, i got to check them out next time. And and you have to make your band better. And and you the only way you could do it is just through stage experience. Exactly, and I think that's why uh, having people like you is so pivotal to this city's music scene and keeping it alive and mm. keeping new talent coming through. Uh, obviously... Uh, we kind of knew when to call it quits and like, we were like, this isn't going the way we want it to go. Um, but that doesn't mean that we're, you know, just fuck this, giving up on, on, on life or get given up on. No, you're allowed to grow and do other things as well. You know, exactly. But I, that's what I'm saying. Like with, with people like you that see that young talent coming up and, uh, giving them a chance to blossom into something that they could be, because we all know like a lot of bands, are together a decade before they get mm-hmm. to really hit their stride and, and start making a cha- uh, making their way. Well, I was when I first started sneaking into bars to, <laughs> to see shows, the, the, the one thing that was really pivotal back then was a lot of times bands used to do residencies of Thursday, Friday, Saturdays, touring bands. Oh, yeah? Yeah, so you'd have a band that would do one room Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then the next week, you'd have another touring band that would, like, so uh, bands that would just basically do, you know, bar level gigs, right? Right. Um, and this isn't around the era of uh, Teenage Head, although Teenage Head were probably one of the very, very first bands that never did that, even though it was like a, a staple. Hmm. Teenage Head would uh, not want to play a, a, a same city three nights in a row. They would only want to go there once. So they sort of revolutionized that whole idea of just going into one city, playing one show, moving on to the other city. And that was kind of different at the time in comparison to all these other bands that were doing it. And um, because of that, I think bands back then grew a lot more 
than I think today because the industry has changed. Back then, you know, th there was definitely a lot more nurturing. You know, you'd have a place that would, uh, you know, feature a band on a Thursday night and then the word of mouth got out about how great this band is on a Thursday and then before you know it, there's double the amount of people on Friday and by Saturday night, it's sold out. Yeah. You, you know, it, it, that's the way things worked back then. And I noticed that, you know, again, th sometimes it was hit and miss, but um, I remember any time, you know, sneaking in, Fake ID. Remember this guy making fake ID? He worked at a suit store, uh, but he was a grade 13 student. And I, I remember being, I think, in grade 11 and, you know, making professional. I don't know how the hell he did it, but, you know, I, I remember getting a, a, a photo and he used to crop it and then somehow laminated it. It was really bizarre, but he, he actually uh, made these uh, Ontario ID cards. Real name? Did you use your real name? Yep. Really? Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, back then they didn't have the holograms and all. They didn't have the holograms. They didn't have uh, any sort of internet or whatever. And you had to look and act, you know, mature. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, you, like yeah. you fit in. You've done this before. <laughs> well, I, I was afraid uh, the first couple of times because I, I wasn't too sure, you know, not only are you going to get are you going to get refused but if you get refused once chances are that door guy's going to remember you again that following because right. that's his job right yeah. you know so um just getting back to the to the point the, the the difference back then to compare to now is is that you would never be able to entertain the idea of saying uh, a touring act plays your bar three nights in a row it's just unheard of but that's what made bands a lot better and that's what gave bands more stage time and that's what gave bands just this ability to become just a a, a great live performing act yeah you know totally and speaking of uh being underage i remember Playing a show at the Corktown uh, mm. with Red Confidential. And you turned 19. September 29th. I remember that. My birthday <laughs> September 30th. Yeah. I played the 29th. Uh, I think I was... A, at midnight. Uh, yeah. Like, I, I came by. I was saying thanks to you and saying goodbye. And uh, you found out that it was my birthday. And it was literally, like, 20 minutes till midnight. And you made me... And I had to get up early the next day. And you're like, no, no, no. You're staying. You're having your first, <laughs> your first legal beer. Oh, cool. So uh, I do remember that. Yeah. So I, that's, I remember I had my first legal beer. At the Corktown? At the Corktown. Uh, I don't know if you were around or you got sidetracked. But I stayed because you're like, no, no, no. You're staying. You're having it here tonight. So I, I do remember you turning 19 uh, during one of your shows. And, yeah. I, I, and I do remember talking to you about uh, wanting you to have your first official beer at the bar. I, yeah. I do remember that. Yeah. That's, I don't know. It's just a good memory I have of being like, no, nope, this is it. And That's what. Well, you know what? This is what this whole industry can possibly give you is really good memories if you let it, you know, because there's just so many really crappy things that happen. You find out about people that rip people off, uh, you know, just a lot of cheating and a lot of um, things that go against the grain. And then you find like there's sort of these silver linings of things that just leave these uh, uh lasting impressions you know yeah. and, and that's what that's that's what it, it should do is just give you these great impressions it's the memories totally that, you know that it's all about and that's the reason why you remember these things that's the way the reason why i remember you know my first record is things that are just really really important yeah uh well that, speaking of like memories in this in this like i wanted to know or uh tom wanted to know uh like okay what's your your all-time this oh, is yeah. like my the moment this is the greatest thing that happened to me during during uh this like basically is there one specific show or that event? i saw or no that even like they took place at one of your bars they say hollywood um, Corktown, whatever anything that you booked just like a pivotal memory well the, the, 
there's honestly been a few. Um, it's hard to pinpoint one because I think the, the thing is is that um, the, the, there's been a lot of magical moments that have been there f- for specific reasons. Um, meeting Dennis Dunaway from the Alice Cooper group uh, and, and the fact that that was my first album that I ever bought. Right. Uh, meeting the two Bouchard brothers uh, who play in Blue Coop that uh, are uh, originally from Blue Oyster Cult. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were they were like my Led Zeppelin. Okay. You know, so uh, BOC were just hugely, hugely influential and important to me. Uh, so meeting those guys was really, really important. Um, almost having a chance to book uh, Lemmy's rockabilly band, but like, you know, being so close to it because uh, one of the drummers that, that drummed uh, at, at our bar uh, for Robert Gordon played in a band called The Head Cat. And it was a rockabilly band where Lemmy just basically sang a bunch of Buddy Holly songs. Wow. No way. Yeah, the, I've never it, even heard of that. Lemmy's uh, favorite uh, performer was Buddy Holly. He's a good one. Oh, yeah. You can't go wrong with Buddy Holly. No, you can't. And I remember talking to uh, Slim Jim Phantom, who was the drummer of the Stray Cats, who was drumming for Robert Gordon this particular show. And I, you know, was asking him, and I said, you know, I met Lemmy twice, um, and I really like the rockabilly band that you guys are in. What are the chances of uh, having you guys up here? And he says, if you can, you, he says, if you can land us a, a really good Toronto gig, we'll gladly come out here. And then before he left, he gave me the agent's uh, email address, and I contacted him. And he said, uh, if, you're, if you're willing to do the legwork, I'll gladly do a show, but it has to be two nights, and we have to do a really big room in Toronto, so either the Phoenix or the Opera House or something. Right. And he said, and it, the Toronto show has to be legit money, and he says, and then we can talk about, you know, doing something at your room. Uh, but he, he specified a specific price that he wanted per ticket. He wanted to do two nights, and I, you know... It was like no problem. You know, yeah, it's yeah. like, and and even though it didn't happen, just that tease, the, the the whole idea that you're getting so close to getting Lemmy in your club, was something that was really really you know outstanding because it 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 almost happened, until Motorhead went on tour. Oh, yeah. I was just about to ask what happened. Yeah, it's like sand in your hand, like yeah. just slipping through the fingers. Yeah, it, it was like you know, it, I I just couldn't believe it. It was like you know, it, maybe six to eight weeks of back and forth, contacting people in Toronto, um, and and this agent basically the 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 head cat didn't really do that many shows. It was more of a a hobby band for Lemmy just to sing Buddy Holly songs. Really, that's like all just, it was. Just an indulgence, like yeah, eh, fuck it, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're Lemmy, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. And, and, and just up. the fact that, yeah, you got to check it out. It's fantastic. And there's a lot of uh, footage on YouTube, and a lot of it is West Coast, uh, California, L.A. shows that they okay. did. Uh, but Danny Harvey on guitar, Slim Jim Phantom on drums, and uh, Lemmy on bass and vocals. And oh. it, it's completely a 180 from Motorhead. But that is, you know, even before Lemmy died, that always stood as, a, you know, one of the, the, the wildest crazy things that we nearly had him, <laughs> you know. And that's what this, uh, again, you know, when you talk about your passion and when when you really want to work it, it's like a dog tugging at a pant leg and it just won't go. And that's how I, sometimes that's how I compare myself to is that dog that just won't let go of that pant leg, right? It's like, you know, you're just not letting go. And that's how I felt because I was really passionate about having it done. But my business partner, Glenn, was also and is still is a, a huge Lemmy fan. So it was really important for us with the possibility of having it done. 
and then, like I said, uh, Motorhead went on tour and it never happened again. So wow. I think uh, th- they didn't even end up doing any more shows after that uh, tour. Oh. They just came out with an album. The album kind of got some pretty decent press because it was uh, very different than any Motorhead album. Mm-hmm. And that's when people found out how passionate Lemmy was about Buddy Holly. And how, and it gave Lemmy a chance just to basically talk about his influences. Cool. Like a like a, like a unicorn, right? Like yeah, you're like I swear I saw it. I swear yeah. it, was, it was right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It was <laughs> so didn't, close. Just didn't have a camera. Yeah. Uh, John Cale at the Corktown uh, from the uh, Velvet Underground was a really really uh, important show. Um, just because of you know your when you talk about your influences and you talk about bands that really you know kind of scoped your whole idea of being experimental and thinking outside the box uh, as you get older, as a teenager, the velvet underground were like that for me. And then being able to find a lot of, uh, uh, John Cale solo albums and really digging those. That was a really important show for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's just so many. And, and, but the thing is, is that the, the, I was just telling this, uh, same thing to somebody at the bar just recently is that it's selfishness. That's yeah. the reason why, you know, that's the reason why they're so important because sometimes you do shows for your own selfish reasons. Oh, well, I would too. Why would, yeah. why wouldn't you? If you got a chance to, uh, meet your heroes and the people you looked up to your whole life, mm-hmm. why wouldn't you bring them in? And that's what, you know, sometimes this, uh, gives you those golden opportunities just to do that, you know, but you know, I, I saw some pretty amazing shows. I remember seeing, uh, the ACDC back in black tour, uh, and, really? and, you know, and, and, and what was really interesting about this is it, it happened at Maple Leaf Gardens and the big talk about that tour was, and I was just introduced to ACDC. I didn't know too much about them. Uh, but by that point I had, if you want blood and power Ridge. that's a good place to start though. Power Ridge <laughs> is by far their best album and it is the most underrated album. And I remember looking at those two album covers and thinking, this is crazy. Yeah. I got to <laughs> check this guys out. And as soon as I started getting into them, um, Back in Black, oh no, Bon Scott died. And that yeah. was a big story was, you know, their, their singer had died mm-hmm. and they brought in this other guy. And I remember seeing that tour at Maple Leaf Gardens and uh, I was completely blown away just with the fact of the presentation. But to me, they were still a band that weren't that well known, yeah. you know, at least to me. But yet they they packed um, Maple Leaf Gardens, and I was like, "Wow, how do these people know all these tunes? And how do how, how do they know this band? Right? Because to me, it was kind of novel, and I I thought it was somewhat bizarre to begin with that they were playing Maple Leaf Gardens. But then you know, once they FM radio started playing the album and you know playing the shit out of it, it you, you started realizing, okay, the, it it was a staple. You know, you have your pre brian johnson and then you have your brian johnson plus right and that's how i think any acdc fan looks at it one of our uh, one of our buddies dads i i'm the details are a little foggy but from what i remember him telling me he saw acdc open for someone in toronto mm-hmm. with bon scott so he was yeah. there for the headlining band and they just happened to open and that is one of those things like man if only right like it, you don't know he's gonna die and no. it's just one of those people that would have been cool to see. That's all. My mentor and the reason why I do what I do musically uh, in booking shows is a guy from Toronto by the name of Gary Top. And Gary Top is like you. He collects all his memorabilia of all the shows. Right. And I'm pretty sure that Gary either helped put that show on or somewhat 
involved with that specific show. That's cool. And um, he, yeah, he 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 uh, probably was involved with it, but uh, he's a big ACDC fan. And there's a band from Brantford, okay, that is an ACDC tribute band, okay. but they don't yeah. do anything. Uh, the, the, you know, once Back in Black starts. They don't cover any of their stuff. So it's all Bon Scott era, right? Nice. It's just for the purists. All right. I need to look into that. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm, I'm a Bon Scott guy when it comes down to it. Oh, me too. But, uh, okay, let's go back. Um, okay. I want to talk to you before we we got like a little bit more time here. But yeah, I want to okay. talk to you about uh, Tung Fu and how that whole thing came about. Because uh, you're saying like, obviously, you, you weren't in bands growing up. You, you Do you play any instruments? or? I learned playing guitar when I was with Lynn. Okay. Um, she had uh, acoustic guitars, and I remember seeing her play guitar and watching her. She she did it with such simplicity, and I was like, "Wow, it doesn't really look that difficult," you know. So I was trying to emulate a lot of what she was doing, and then I got introduced to the bar chord. Yeah. And and I was like, "Wow, this is a lot easier now." So, <laughs> um, started just playing to songs that I loved. Uh, a lot of dictator songs, uh, Ramon songs. And then I started realizing that through these songs, I started composing songs on my own that the Poison Arrows did. And I started uh, co-writing with Lynn. And I enjoyed it. But I wasn't too sure whether I wanted to get up on stage to ever sing because I have just felt I was always a fan first, not so much a performer. But I always, like I said, you know, I, I always thought the stage was a sacred place. And you had to be really good to get up there, or at least be really confident. And I didn't, and, and I wasn't confident in myself to actually ever pull it off. One of the very first times I ever went on stage was with you guys doing those Kiss songs. Are you serious? Yep. That's I think, you know what? That's another memory I have of. Yeah. Of, I think we did Snowblind. Uh, I remember Cold Gin. Cold Gin. Um, and I remember there was a. Uh, Oh, what's the Paul Stanley song that we did? Um, I can hear it in my head, but I can't. I remember the words. We didn't. What was off? Rock and roll over? No. no we were gonna do Baby know. Driver, and Kevin couldn't get the offbeat drums. Oh, right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's on like the yeah upbeat or whatever, and he couldn't yeah. get it, so we scrapped that one. We did Cold Gin. I remember we did Cold Gin. I remember we did uh, Snowblind. I don't remember Seems... that one. No, from, that seems about from right. the Ace Frehley album. Yeah, shock me, shock me. That's what it was. It wasn't Snowblind. It was shock me. Okay, so, I that's know. What, that's shock what, yeah. me. That's what it was. Because we're Ace guys. So oh, it, me too. It, it would have been an Ace heavy. Uh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. But that was one of my very first times getting up on stage, and I enjoyed it. And the thing that I really liked about it the most was just the fact that I was doing it uh, with people that you know I I really looked up to in terms of uh, you know young guys that were digging rock and roll and it just reminded me of people like the the one thing about you guys is you always remind me of uh, people that I hung out in high school with that, that, that was like kind of a comfort zone for me so I really enjoyed it it was really really good for me um, See, and now that's weird because I just remember like when we're that when we're we went to your young, parents place to uh, yeah, rehearse in the basement great. yeah we the also one... went uh, yeah go ahead no go ahead uh, upstairs above the cork town right which with that Honestly, me and Kevin and Tom, we were talking about that last time we jammed mm. uh, because that memory is like, it's so bizarre because I remember we were going up the stairs yeah. and then we went through like this little apartment. That's and then where we, we lived. Yeah. yeah. And then we went through like, it looked it like, a like the stairs closet. kept going and going. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. It, and then we went through like a broom closet or something. It, that's what it seemed <laughs> like in my memory. And then it just opened up into this enormous 
room yeah. with this amazing chandelier yeah. and this area rug and these like the band stuff was all set up and I remember all of us were looking at each other like this is fucking awesome what is this yeah, it's the kind of space we would have killed for at the time when we were 16 we got the basement it's like that's ah, good enough but like that was for us that was awesome you know we always tried to convince the old owner at the time to do something with that room but he, you know he had it in his mind that he just wanted us to sell it and he didn't really want to invest in it anymore. He was kind of getting tired of being a bar owner. And, and and sometimes it really wears on you. And he had it from 88 to 2006. So for 18 wow. years, you know. Um, so he, I think, you know, he's trying to wean himself off from uh, investing and committing another chapter to it, right? So okay. what, when did you open so, up uh, this in Hollywood? In 2009. Nine. But getting back to the, 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 the performing so after those Kiss songs, um, about maybe six months later, we ended up uh, hosting a Queen tribute. And uh, Bruce Hotchkeys from uh, Britney's Crack <laughs> um, hosted that show. And he did, uh, he, he did a fundraiser for the prenatal uh, division or area of um, McMaster University's Children's Hospital. And so he picked a bunch of people and someone had said, well, Lou just sang a couple of songs not too long ago, a couple of Kiss songs. Uh, why don't you uh, ask him if he wants to do a couple of Queen songs? And I didn't want to do any Freddie Mercury songs. I, I wouldn't mind doing... <laughs> That's a tall you know, order. Oh, no kidding. So I did a couple <laughs> of songs where Brian May sang. And uh, th that could have probably had been my second or third time up on... I think my second time was getting up and doing some Kinks songs for Kinks for Cancer. And then the Queen tribute. So those would have been probably the first three times that I got up on stage to sing. And then from there, uh, weirdly enough, a couple of years after, uh, I had left the court town and I was kind of burnt out. Just, you know, more mentally burnt out because uh, with the shift of the new owner, um, I, I was trying to convince him because he had great ideas and great plans on just spending a lot of money and uh, renovating the room. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to convince him by, you know, if, 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 you're, if you really want to, you know, put all this money in it, this could possibly be the best venue in the country. Mm -hmm. You know, space, parking lot, kitchen, it had it all, right? Yeah. But he wasn't as musically savvy, and he didn't really want to commit to it. Like, he re he basically, his purpose for buying it uh, was just to continue what, what they were doing with Slauncha. Okay. So, um, he really, we didn't see eye to eye on the music. And so, it was kind of hard uh, for the first couple of months of being there. And, and then finally, we just had, uh, you know, we, we both of us hit a wall. We were just coming from total ends uh, of the spectrum, different ends of the spectrum. So... I pulled out and resigned, and I just needed a bit of a break. Uh, my mom had just passed away. My dad was by himself. So Lynn and I moved to Oshawa for about a year, but we still were, you know, connected to Hamilton booking shows at the Absinthe at the time. And um, it gave me a lot more time just to be me and to just kind of, you know, just indulge into things that I missed, you know, just being able to stay home on a Friday night and listen to music as opposed to booking bands. And, you know, so I started just going through my record collection and, uh, started, uh, uh, listening to my blue oyster cult records. Seriously. It was like therapy to me. It was just like, like I said earlier, they were like my Led Zeppelin. So once I started listening to these guys again, um, I thought we should do a blue oyster cult night and I'm going to put a band together 
of a bunch of people and we're going to basically, you know, uh, go through a bunch of songs and, and learn them. And then I thought the brain surgeons, right? Yeah. Remember that show yep. you guys were on it? The drummer, Albert Bouchard, that's, uh, one of yep. the original founders and the guy who wrote like 70% of the music for oh, Blue Oyster wow. Cult. Yeah. So I was keeping in contact with him after that brain surgeons show and, um, I asked him, I said, how would you feel drumming to a bunch of Blue Oyster Cult songs that you choose and we'll learn them and we'll uh, get it together and uh, we'll, we'll do a couple of shows. And he said, I'd love to do that. So That's awesome. yeah, by that point, we we're emailing each other back and forth quite a bit. So we built a relationship uh, on a communication basis and we put the show together and I made sure that I, I was going to sing about four or five of those songs. And those were the like four or five songs that really made me think, okay, I'm starting to feel a little bit more comfortable about this now because like I'm hitting sort of a common ground and a safe ground comfort level mm-hmm. of songs that were important to me as a person. So probably know them like the back of your hand. Yeah. And that was the other thing that, you know, and, and, and every time we played him and, 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 you know, sang him, it just reminded me of all these great memories of growing up. So, uh, we did that show, and then about a year later, we opened up the St. Hollywood, and Gordy Lewis had a residency called the Gord Lewis Songbook, where um, he used to have people come up and sing a bunch of songs, and I would ask Gordy, he's like, hey, Gordy, can we do a couple of Stooges songs, and do you mind if I sing a couple of Stooges songs? And that's where I kind of felt that was my practice. It was almost like, a, you know, the Gordy Lewis idol. <laughs> like boot camp. Yeah, it was kind of. It was yeah. like, you know, Canadian Idol getting up every week and can you do better? And uh, th- that's where I, I, I thought, okay, you know what? I'm starting to like this, but I'm not liking it for any delusions of grandeur. I'm liking this for selfish reasons of just being able to play with my friends and sing. <laughs> that's and the best that, way to do it. And that's why Tung Fu happened. It, it was like, you know, the, it's probably the most uh, non-pressurous type of band ever because we're doing it for the purpose of just being together and hanging out with each other. You know, all of us have history together. Yeah, and uh, you got a couple of heavy hitters on the lineup, too. Why don't you go through the lineup? Okay, so Gord Lewis of Teenage Heads on guitar, Rob Sweeney. When you're talking about how influential Tom was to you growing up uh, with music, Rob worked at Star Records, and Robbie would always direct me to the really good records. The the ones that, like, when you think about your Desert Island picks and the ones that are really, you know, monumental. Right, yeah. Thankfully, Robbie pointed me in that direction. So he plays guitar as well. Dave Valley, one of my closest, uh, dearest friends who uh, played bass in the Orphans, uh, plays bass. Uh, Gene Champagne of the Killjoys uh, plays drums. Uh, Greg Briscoe, one of my closest friends, uh, plays keyboards. And uh, I'm thinking, who did I forget? Me, Gordy, Robbie, Dave, Gene, Briscoe. And that's it. So a six-piece. That's a six-piece. And and basically emulated it from uh, Radio Birdman. That was one of the reasons, like, I was a big Radio Birdman fan, and I love the fact that these guys, it was an Australian band that was really influenced by the MC5, but they did it with six guys, and they did all these great things with keyboards, and and I wanted that as well. So right. there, there isn't anything original about Tung Fu other than the fact that we're a bunch of fucking copycats. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, but you're copying all the best people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's That was important to us, and and, and it's just like there, there's such a democracy with the band that really kind of um, speaks for itself. Like, no one's egoing out. Like we really want to do things and when we do things, it, it has to be right for all of us, you know? And I think that's a good thing about them. These guys are pros they're seasoned and going into the recording studio and hearing their advice, you know, the, the, the reason why they're suggesting and, and advising you and doing things is because they know. So have you got anything recorded? We have a record out. Uh, we also have a 45. We wrote a song called James Street North. I've I, heard, heard, I heard, I did hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that came out on a, on a 45. We put out our, uh, 
five-song EP. Uh, Andy Chernoff of The Dictators produced it. And again, another selfish thing. We asked Andy to come down. We felt that he was the right guy to do it. And just to be able to get, you know, one of your biggest influences in your life to come down and, uh, you know, say, yeah, I'd love to produce your record. It was just kind of uh, mind-blowing. Like, you know, there's so many moments where you have to pinch yourself to really believe this is happening. But I think these are the payoffs in, in a way they're selfish payoffs, but I think the reason why they happen is just that, uh, you know, when you believe in something so much magic happens, at least to us, that's the way we look at it. It may not mean anything to anybody else, but to us, these are monumental moments. Right. And so, okay. So how's the songwriting process work with you guys? Cause everyone is so seasoned and, uh, you know, like, is it all over the place? Or it's, what? it's very intimidating. I can imagine. It's very intimidating because, you know, I, I'm a very loose acoustic guitar player. So I, I bring a guitar. I don't even have a guitar case. So I literally, when Brian or Dave picks me up, like Brian Bryce, uh, my buddy who drives a cab, I bring the guitar and lay it in the back seat because I don't have a guitar case. <laughs> like, I mean, it's so old school, but uh, I bring a guitar and I'll show these guys, uh, you know, the song. We record it on my phone and then send the f- song back to them. And then we edit it for the, the following week. So th- the way it starts is I'll, s- I'll bring the guitar or sorry, I'll bring the song to the band. And by week three or week four, we, we're, we're really happy with the way it goes. So it starts, you know, hey, guys, I've got an idea to, hey, collectively, we made a whole new song out of it. Right. Okay. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. We got more... Uh... Uh, like, are you guys planning on recording more, like, as you go on? Like, this isn't obviously, like, a short-term thing. Like, you seem to be, like, like really getting well, going with it. I, well, I, I think the, the reason why it's a sort of a long-term thing for us is because it nurtures our friendship. It, it's six guys that really enjoy hanging out with each other, and we have laughs. And, you know, it's, it, it's like, I don't mean to be so Pollyannic about it, but it, it, it feels like we're in our own little planet. It's really funny, like when the six of us rehearse or when we're together, I was just noticing um, when we did a show in Ottawa and um, it was funny, like just watching us, there's a, a really interesting chemistry. It's like the six of us go in, we all hang out with each other. And then eventually, you know, Briscoe goes out for a smoke, grabs a beer, gets talking to other people. And then, you know, we all go our separate ways. But then about a half hour, all six of us just naturally get back together again, you yeah. know, and then we kind of go off and do our own thing. And then six of us are back together again throughout the whole evening. It's just like really, really weird. So I think there's a uniqueness about it. But I think the, the thing that just provides longevity is the fact that it's really helpful to our friendship. Like there's no hard feelings ever. Um, you know, when, when these guys think that I've got a shitty idea for a chorus or a bridge, they'll be the first ones to tell me. And in most cases they're right. You know, you, you, you learn to, to like that shitty part because you think it's a good part Mm -hmm. until you take it out or change it. And then it becomes the hook. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, having that friendship and that bond with your band can only, uh, improve things in the long run and it really holds you to your guns uh, uh, when it comes to having those you know like you said like weeding out the shit if yeah. you have people that you know have your best interest in mind and everyone's working as a team to to f- towards this one goal yeah then you know you can trust them and then that's where you don't have drama no trust is a given like it was so funny because when we first started um Okay, really, really quickly, I'll give you the Coles Notes version. So we just fit, we, we just did our first show um, in, in January 2013. Someone from uh, a TV program uh, was in town, and they said uh, they contacted the bar and they said, 
someone from our crew saw a band that played here Friday night, and we think that they would be an appropriate band to uh, be featured on the CTV program called The Listener. Do you know Do you know how we can get in touch with the, the band? And so the daytime bartender said, well, I'll just give you the guy's name who books all the bands. He's one of the owners. He'll be able to tell you. So... I get in contact with him, and he said, could you tell me the band who, there's six guys that played <laughs> last Friday night. Uh, we were thinking that they would be really great for a clip in an episode. And I'm, I'm thinking Friday night, that was us. That was us. <laughs> That's us. Yeah, so you get super excited about it. And so they featured us on the, an episode of The Listener. Cool. Yeah, and, and, and that would have been like maybe three weeks after our very, very first show. So it just felt right, like, because uh, not that we're, again, we're not goal-driven at all. It's not that we're expecting to change everything. It's not that we want to be the biggest selling band. We don't expect any of it. All we want to do is just selfishly do what we want to do and hope that our friends like it. That's yeah. it. I mean, yeah, that's that's what Tom and I do. That's what, like, some of our favorite bands do. Yeah. I mean, that's when you know you're having fun. Uh, do you guys have any, like, shows coming up? Not right now. Uh, we just uh, finished a show in January. I think what we really want to do is just kind of uh, concentrate on just maybe doing some uh, pre-production and then getting ready to uh, record. I think we're ready because we've got a bunch of uh, songs that we want to record and uh, release. And it, it's it's fun. Like, I, I love the process of it. It's just, you know, you have an idea and then lo and behold, a year later, you have a tangible product. Yeah. You know, it, it's kind of weird. You working on a full length. Uh, this time it, it will be a full length. Our first one was a, a five song EP. Then we came out with the 45 and then, you know, we'll, we'll probably come out with a full length. But again, it's just, you know, it, it's the fact that when we leave rehearsal, we're all smiling. We're all in good spirits. There's no one who dislikes anybody in the band. And that was really important to me is just getting six people that had kindred spirits, uh, that really, you know, wanted to do this just for the whole reason of doing it. I mean, Gordy's got his teenage head. Gene's, uh, working on new pro, um, new, uh, music with, uh, the, the killjoys. So these guys have got their nine to fives in their music and in their own, like to, to them, this is just like a boy's gang. Yeah. That's all it is. Well, man, I mean, I'm super thrilled with everything that you've got going on. Um, it's always good to see you. We don't see you, you too. often enough. Yeah. Actually, I've got one quick question before yeah, I sure, forget man. to ask. Like a half hour before you got here, I'm going on Facebook, and uh, that B.A. Johnston ham jam yeah. thing comes up. Yeah. And there's a picture. You know, he's a little video clip of him with his arms crossed. And yeah. I'm like, holy fuck, that's Lou in the background. Yeah. yeah. So, um, what, did, what were you doing okay. for that? Okay, so... We're big, we're big B.A. Oh, yeah. Johnson fans. Yes, sir. <laughs> okay, so uh, when we opened up the St. Hollywood, he was one of those guys that we definitely wanted to uh, have uh, play our, our bar. Like, I know that B.A.'s got this thing where he really enjoys playing a lot of different rooms, but, you know, we really wanted to warm up uh, and, and, and have B.A. Johnson uh, play. So the first time we had B.A. over, like, to me, he's a rock star. I, there's yeah. something about him that I just love. Undeniable. You know, the, and and he he's a showman and he's a professional and he's got his shtick, but like his songs are clever and he's just so punk rock. <laughs> I always thought like every time I try and explain to a uh, to someone who's a fan, I'm like, yeah, and maybe this is looking too far into it, but I'm like, yeah, it's funny, but he's also commenting on like the time and the place. I'm like, he's a true folk artist. Yeah, he definitely is. And I feel strongly about that. Like, yeah, it's funny, but there's actually substance here. If you look deep enough into it. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, you, you can't really depict loneliness more than having some guy singing about wanting a deep fryer in his bedroom, you know, and thinking <laughs> that's the epitome of life, you know? Uh, but 
so the B.A. The, the Johnson, once we started doing B.A. Johnson shows, I remember the very first time we had him, I was ready just, you know, in the side room to congratulate him and thank him for doing our show. And he was sweaty. He was all red. And he had his hands on his hips like this. And he was shaking his head. And he's like, fuck, man. He says, I suck. <laughs> Seriously. He was so disappointed with his show. And I thought he just gave the best performance I had ever seen. Right. Yeah. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, man. He says, I could have done better. And I just really stuck tonight. And that made me respect him even more because a lot of people don't take BA serious enough. But like, I mean, this guy's a, he, he, he's a hero and he's a real hardworking guy and his art means a lot to him and his fans mean a lot to him. So we've always had him in and you know, like BA is one of those guys that every time he asks us for a show, I feel honored. Like he's one of those guys that's like, thank you for playing our room. And I really mean that about this guy. So uh, he's part of a, the, something that's going to be happening online called uh, Ham Jam, and he's doing these teasers, and he said, I want you and Glenn to uh, do this little teaser with me. We're going to go to um, the old Burger King in the West End. Oh, nice. Right? Which yeah. is now no longer there. Yeah. Um, it's an abandoned Burger King, and he says, and we're going to go to... Uh, what's that? Um, the tally ho. Right. Yeah. We're going to go grab some sandwiches at the tally ho and we're going to eat them <laughs> really fast and be really sloppy, but we're going to eat these sandwiches in front of the, uh, the Burger King. So he kind of had this vision of what he wanted somehow, because like I realized that even then it's like, okay, every goofy idea that he has, there's a reason behind it. Right. And so I wasn't entirely sure. I didn't really ask him why, but I thought I'm just going to go with the flow with it. But I was honored that he asked Glenn and I to, to be part of it. So he's going to be featuring his own little TV program. Yeah. And that's, I'm, I'm super excited. Me I, too. When I saw that the other day, we were actually trying to get him on uh, the podcast and we, we sent him like this big paragraph long message, like, Hey, like if, you know, we know we're kind of small time, whatever, uh, it would be awesome. I'm like, you know, you can talk to Lou. He he knows us. He'll, yeah, vouch, he'll for vouch for us. us. We're yeah. not crazy. Yeah, Go not, back again. We're let's, not crazy. let's get, you know what? We should get in the loop, the three of us, and just pressure him because if you pressure him enough, he'll say yes. Well, That's how we got him to do our New Year's Eve. He's like, I don't want to do New Year's Eve. It's like, why? He's like, no one's going to show up. Well, this is the point I'm getting at. We send him this huge, long paragraph, basically like, okay, we're not crazy, whatever. And we just get like one word back. He's like, yep. And we're like, well, that was fucking easy. Oh, so you yeah, guys he, got him? No, he up? agreed to do it. Oh, but okay. Then uh, his show at, at Bissing Hollywood was on the 18th, right? Right. Scott goes on vacation on the 16th, so he's out of the country. Uh, so I had to email him back like, fuck, I'm sorry I didn't realize my buddy's going to be away. Is there any chance you're going to be in Hamilton? Like, I think he has a Guelph show like the weekend before. You should buy travel insurance and switch your trip, buddy. Yeah. I should. <laughs> fuck the Dominican. Yeah, fuck like, the Dominican. I mean, I'd way rather hang out with BA than have you have a good time. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think I would too, but you know. But um, I, if he can't do it this time, I said to him, uh, you know, hopefully next time you're in town, we can work it out. So yeah, he's he's definitely like uh, when we were thinking of guests, we were like, shoot for the stars. Let's try and get some guys we really expect and admire and want to be in here. And uh, luckily, Hamilton is is not that uh, broad of a community that you nobody's untouchable. You can get a hold of anybody. Oh, for sure, and that's the best thing about this city. And I and I think I. I, I think it'll never change regardless. Like, you know, you can go anywhere downtown and you can see Jeremy Weiderman on a skateboard yeah, from yeah. Monster Truck, you know, or see the guys, uh, you know, just walking around and, you know, they, they look so nondescript. I used to see the, the bass player. What's his name? John Harvey. Yes. I used to see him every morning. I'd leave for work at uh, 6 a.m. Yeah. And I'd be driving down Parkdale. Yeah. And every morning I would see him standing there waiting for the bus with his lunch bag. 
Yeah. Every morning. Yeah. And then uh, when we started following them was before they kind of hit it big. Mm-hmm. And I remember just having that respect for them. I'm like, they're just they're just like everybody else. He's fucking work up at whatever time to go to work. Yeah. And I'm going to work and he's there. And like, I'm super thrilled for, for them and their success too. Me too. I, I Another moment that I, I kind of remember just that puts perspective on reality and how people are real in this uh, city. A couple of years ago, uh, seeing Max Kerman of the Arkells riding a bike. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, no fancy car or anything. He's just on his bike, you know, just riding his bike downtown. And it's like, there's something that has, I, I think Hamilton's really important because it it, it, uh, it attracts those kind of people that yeah. always want to be real and they don't want to have that sort of rock stardom. You know, if you do, you, you're not going to survive here in Hamilton. No, it's totally uncool. And they don't want you here. You exactly. Know? That's exactly. the thing about it. Like no one wants, like everybody wants, you know, regardless if you've played Cops Coliseum the night before, you still want to walk into your favorite coffee shop and say hi to people without being bombarded. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I think the, the majority of the people just are the, uh, are cool enough to just let that happen and just be like, oh, there's, you know, so-and-so, no big deal. Because they don't change as people. That's the thing about these musicians. They always remember, you know, those Tuesday nights that they played in front of seven people and how that, you know, became 27 people and 107 people. Like, you know, there's always something that really kind of puts uh, face value to perspective and reality in the city. And and, and I think that's the one thing that a lot of uh, musicians really admire about the city is the fact that it allows them just to be real. Yeah. And I think that's a good note to go out on. Sure, man. Um, it's been an honor, a pleasure. It's been great to see you guys. You know? Well, let's play some more Kiss songs soon. I'd yeah. be down anytime. <laughs> Come down to the basement. We got yeah. the drums set up. Okay. All right, man. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. Take it easy. Thank you. Yeah, you too. Thank you.